0: episode of the Lee McCollum Show. I talked with Dr. Anel Sheline about her work with the Quincy Institute and Biden's recent announcements regarding Yemen. Anel talks about how the U.S. designates Islamist groups as moderate or extremist and how authoritarian regimes often use the term moderate to paint everyone else vying for power as extremists. We also dive into the history of the Yemen conflict a bit, talk about how the U.S. labeling the Houthis as a terrorist group was political, and whether Biden's announcement that the U.S. is pulling offensive support from Saudi Arabia was enough. Remember to like, subscribe and share the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube and Stitcher. Here's the interview. Well, Anel, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Liam. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, of course. I want to get into the current news with Biden and Yemen. Um, But before so, can we just talk a little bit about your background, what you study and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I just about me, I am the research fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is uh, a think tank that launched just over a year ago um, based here in D.C. The Quincy Institute is focused on advocating for a less militaristic U.S. foreign policy. So essentially that uh, for for a long time, especially since 9-11, but prior to that as well. Um, the U.S. has really relied on the military as one of our sort of primary foreign policy tools, and I and and my colleagues at QI see this as really problematic for U.S. interests. That it would be a lot more effective, um, more cost-effective, more sort of policy-effective if the U.S. relied less on the, our most expensive tool and instead. Uh, relied a lot more on our very capable State Department, on our diplomats, um, and on on more sort of international collaboration, that moving forward, the ways that the U.S. has been sort of accustomed to act unilaterally in the world, it's just going to be, um, it's it's costly, it doesn't work all that well, and, you know, moving forward, especially vis-a-vis a more powerful China, The US just really needs to think differently about how we want to interact in the world, especially given that some of our most pressing security concerns are issues that we can't really resolve by ourselves. I mean, there are issues like the pandemic, (laughs) there are issues like climate change, um, where moving forward, if we want to get anything done on these, it's going to have to be done in a more collaborative manner. Um, And so in the Middle East, what I focus on in particular are issues like reducing the U.S. military footprint that you know I and my colleagues argue? The fact that the U.S. continues to station hundreds of thousands, well, thousands of troops um, around the region, especially in our our the Gulf security partners, that that's based on sort of a previous and outdated military calculus that no longer is. Uh, do do we need to be as concerned about things like, you know, Saddam Hussein marching across the border into Kuwait that, you know, actors that the U.S. still worries about, you know, actors like Iran, for example. Iran is not going to launch a ground invasion um, to to try to sort of, you know, take control of of oil resources, you know, all the way in, in Saudi Arabia, for example. I mean, that just think looking at, you know know if you can see like the map behind me, um, but it would just be completely unrealistic for Iran to do something like that. And so the fact that the U.S. continues to just station large numbers of troops in this part of the world really just doesn't doesn't correspond to the reality of, of the way wars are fought these days. And so moving forward, uh, the U.S. really needs to get a lot of our troops out of the region. Um, and that also just you know, that we're moving away from dependence on on petroleum. And so it's really unclear why we continue to sort of maintain a military presence that was based on a calculus where the U.S. really needed to make sure, you know, our our access to oil was not going to be threatened and moving forward. That's just, you know, the the world economy, luckily, finally, is moving away from petroleum. Um, Certainly the U.S. has an interest in maintaining you know our our allies in East Asia, who continue to be quite dependent on Middle East oil, there's a shared interest in you know keeping making sure the Strait of Hormuz remains open, but that does not require the the current level of of u s military presence in the region um, and again, moving forward, it would be in everyone's interest for for kind of there to be less of a focus on trying to protect this petroleum and more on, you know, how does each country achieve energy independence through renewable resources? Um, so that's sort of the, the broader focus of the Quincy Institute. Um, you, you should definitely speak with some of my colleagues on the East Asia team that are really concerned about all this rhetoric around a cold, you know, this, the U S has to fight a cold war with China. Again, the, the logic there just being completely flawed that, <laughs> the, the threats the United States faces are ones that we're going to need to work with China on, and that if we if we just focus on fighting China, we're, you know <laughs> the, the climate, you know the actual threats like climate change are just are just going to continue to be um, unresolved, which is which is a really scary thought. Um, so my my background, uh, I have a PhD in political science from George Washington University um focusing on comparative politics and in particular my research looked at sort of the construction of religious authority especially since 9 11. so thinking in particular about the ways in which pressure from the united states to um so so the story i I would tell there essentially is kind of after 9 11 the the bush administration Acknowledged that part of why we saw um, these acts of violent extremism did have to do with the lack of democracy in the region, which is part of why there was that push, you know, af- after the, the war in Afghanistan was launched um, ostensibly to, you know, go after Al Qaeda and their their sort of helpers, the Taliban. Um, then they go after Iraq and the notion being that, well, you know, we'll just export democracy to Iraq and then it'll spread throughout the region. And clearly that didn't work at all. Um, but also the response from these these autocratic regimes, governments in the region was was a lot of concern that if the U.S. was going to go around spreading democracy, you know, that was really scary for all of these non-democratic uh, governments in the region. And so they they were really um, on board with the thought that um, it wasn't actually about democracy, that nine eleven, you know, that acts of extremism were not about the fact that these populations, you know, have almost no political opportunities, very few economic opportunities. That really the problem was Islam. And so these governments were very much involved in this sort of Islamophobic rhetoric around how it's not about lack of democracy. It's about, you know, this this incorrect interpretation of Islam. And so moving forward, we really have to be scared of those those Islamists, you know, and the ways in which uh, the notion of, of Islamism became linked to the notion of terrorism. And it's been interesting. I've, I've noticed recently. Um, so so the word Islamist in the, in the way I use it usually refers and sort of within academic literature refers to an individual or an organization that is interested in an expanded role for for Islam in the public sphere. So that can play out in a lot of different ways. You can have um, you know so the Muslim Brotherhood for example which an organization that started in 1928 in Egypt and subsequently expanded throughout you know branches of it or sort of affiliated groups or groups that were really sort of inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood have spread throughout much of the region um, and often were involved in sort of um, charity or efforts to expand access to education. And, and often we're filling the gaps, especially in places like Egypt, um, where the state was no longer able to to sort of fulfill its its commitments to sort of provide education and health care and, you know, access to basic resources. And the Muslim Brotherhood stepped in and and also as it, as it was providing these needed um, services, it was also advocating for, for kind of you know, greater piety, greater modesty. Um, in, in many ways, it's interesting because a lot of what the Muslim Brotherhood stands for, I would say a lot of American conservatives would probably also agree with just in terms of kind of a, an expanded role, role for religion and just the preservation of more conservative values, you know, prioritizing the family, prioritizing modesty, you know, going, attending your religious service. Um so and and yet like the Muslim Brotherhood in a lot of these countries you know was they were they were the actors that then following the Arab spring they are who kind of stepped into the space left behind when rulers uh, you know the president of Egypt was forced out of power the, the president of Tunisia um I mean in Yemen's kind of a whole other case but eventually the president of Yemen was was forced to step down Um, And it was often these Islamist groups that that sort of were oftentimes the only political organization that kind of had the existing networks that were able to step in right away, whereas uh, kind of other groups, these like youth organizations or leftist organizations or just various um, kind of members of civil society had been systematically disempowered over time, whereas a lot of these governments were not able to target these Islamist groups in the same way because to do so would have really provoked a backlash. And again, similar to kind of how we've seen um, in in this country, how you know religious groups, you it, it it will provoke a big backlash if the government tries to sort of go after a religious group's ability to meet or to organize, or um, so, so again, there, there are some interesting parallels there, Um, obviously some major differences in sort of the level of rights afforded to, to citizens of this country, as opposed to, you know, in the Muslim Brotherhood has been systematically sort of imprisoned and targeted with repression um, across the region and especially in Egypt. Um, so again, very, very different, um, but, but some interesting similarities as well. So just to go back to this notion that like to refer to someone as an Islamist is not to say that they're a terrorist. And so it's been interesting. Sometimes I'll, I'll mention kind of an Islamist group on Twitter and someone will say, you shouldn't call them an Islamist. And it's sort of like, well, no, but, but they are an Islamist because when I say that, I mean that, you know, they, they want an expanded role for Islam, you know, they they advocate for, you know, any, any of a list of, of sort of, of objectives, but none of them are, are violence. These individuals are not terrorists. And so it's been interesting, I think, that that conflation of Islamists and terrorists has been quite successful, especially in the American imagination. So all that to say, um, kind of especially since 9-11, and then reiterated after 2011, when, again, a lot of these governments felt really terrified at their prospect that these Islamist groups were had demonstrated their ability to sort of play a political role in, and to take power, as we saw in Egypt and in Tunisia, um, you started seeing a lot of this rhetoric of so-called moderate Islam. And this was not the first time we'd heard that rhetoric, um, that kind of prior to 9 we you tended to hear it especially in, in reference to um, countries or leaders who were willing to, to do what the U.S. wanted. And often that corresponded to their willingness to engage with Israel. So, you know, that once Egypt, you know, President Sadat um, signed the Camp David Accords and, you know, was, was willing to kind of engage in a peace treaty with Israel, you know that he was then labored, labeled a moderate Muslim, as was sort of you know Egypt in general, and and later when Jordan uh, similarly signed a peace treaty. Okay, so now they're moderate Muslims. After 9/11, it became much more about repudiating violence, um, but also that prompted a lot of of pushback because you know for a lot of Muslims, the notion that Islam itself needed a modifier was quite problematic. You know that that for these people you know, their perspective was like, you don't have to say moderate Islam, you can just say Islam, because Islam does not promote violence. (laughs) Um, And then on the other hand, you had a lot of Islamophobes saying there's no such thing as moderate Islam, because Islam itself is so violent, which is nonsense. But but again, within this American um, discourse, I, I think there was a lot of confusion. Obviously, there was a lot of of concern and fear coming out of 9-11. Um, you know, a lot of people who, who who were as, again, as a result of like historical factors, I mean, some of this came out of concerns um, that came out of the, the, the Islamic revolution in 1979 in Iran, and obviously the, the hostage crisis. You know, for a lot of Americans, that was kind of their first exposure to Islam. I mean, that, that there hadn't been a whole lot of media penetration earlier or, or if there had been it was it was fairly neutral or but so just that the fact that this thing that was calling itself the islamic revolution resulted in this this horrible situation with you know american hostages being held in the american embassy in tehran um that was that was kind of the the introduction for a lot of americans and then subsequent you know acts of of Violent extremism, kind of happening throughout the the 80s and 90s, and then obviously 9/11. It is it is somewhat understandable that uh, an American population who uh, that for whom these were their kind of the highlights of their understandings of what Islam meant, that it was very easy for then this notion of sort of Islam and terrorism to become linked, no matter how problematic that is. Uh, I think the answer to that is, is the need for kind of broader religious education that, you know, obviously there are concerns about, you know, religion in schools, but I do think that it's important for, for young people, you know, for school-aged children in America to have kind of a working knowledge of, you know, what, what, what are the, what are the tenets of Islam? Like what are the basics of Judaism? Like what, what are, what do we mean when we say Buddhism or Taoism, like all, you know, and, and, various animistic traditions from Africa, for example, that I do think it would be really helpful moving forward for and 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 for Christianity also to be included on that on that list of kind of like, well, what what are the different branches of Christianity? You know, like Orthodox Christians, Americans don't necessarily have as much exposure to to those traditions. Um, So that's that's just my little plug for more religious education in in American public schools. Um, But so anyway, back to moderate Islam, a lot of these countries, uh, a lot of countries in the Middle East, were only too willing to sort of jump on the moderate Islam bandwagon to paint the political opposition within their country as the radicals, as the terrorists, as these scary Islamists, and to portray themselves as moderate Muslims, to say, look, it's either us or Al-Qaeda, which is false. You know, Al-Qaeda itself is a tiny organization, and... You know the political opposition that that threatened these these uh, governments in many cases were merely uh, arguing for you know more representative governments. You know, pushing for democracy, as we saw during the Arab Spring. Um, you know, greater economic opportunities. There's rampant corruption, unfortunately, throughout much of the region, um, which really just undermines you know any any sort of advancement um, opportunities for a lot of these. A lot of these people, which again is what we saw on display during the frustration of the Arab Spring, um, and most recently, what we've seen. Um, so, you know, th- these sorts of moderate Islam campaigns, like Jordan did some of, as I, as I am happy to go into, that was one of the cases I studied for my research. Morocco did a lot of this. The UAE has been very effective at this, and most recently, Saudi Arabia had adopted this language of so-called moderate Islam. Um, they did it prior to Mohammed bin Salman, but who's the, the crown prince, MBS, as he's often called. Um, but his adoption of that rhetoric got a lot of attention in 20, 2017 in October at um, Saudi Arabia's sort of big investment conference. And following that, MBS came and did his sort of charm tour of the U.S. where he met with all these executives in Silicon Valley and members of Congress and you know, Thomas Friedman wrote that glowing uh, review of him for the New York Times and just talked about how you this young prince is going to transform Saudi Arabia. And and you know, he allowed women to drive and he opened some cinemas, but you know, fundamentally he was interested in maintaining the, the control of the Al Saud, of, of himself, he really consolidated power uh, in his own hands in a way that historically in Saudi Arabia, power has been more sort of spread across the Al Saud family, as well as um, some power granted to sort of the, the clerical establishment of religious scholars. Um, and that so, so again, he, he implemented a few um, mostly cosmetic reforms, that were very welcomed by a young Saudi population, many of whom had studied abroad and were really interested in Saudi Arabia becoming sort of a more normal country, as they would say. And so they were really excited about what he was doing. But unfortunately, this was all accompanied by huge repression of, of clerics, of activists, of anyone who really said anything against him or, or was, was questioning what he was doing. Um, and obviously then the Khashoggi murder um, Kind of uh, <laughs> derailed his whole his whole moderate Muslim narrative, um, and and subsequently, um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of pushback about Saudi Arabia's involvement in Yemen, um, and and imprisoning of, of activists, the people like Lujain al-Hathlul, who was a, a women's rights activist, who. Who, you know, one of her crimes was driving, which is now legal in Saudi Arabia. And so the fact that she's still locked up and facing um, an extreme sentence, as well as ongoing mistreatment and and lack of um, resources, and she's just sort of the face of of many many individuals who are languishing in Saudi prisons. Um, I'll stop there and let you ask a question. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, how does the Mecca document and kind of like the um, reaffirmation of like the charter charter of medina play into that does do then all of those people who are outside of who the the saudi government are they then determined as extremists and then the u.s government is against them how does that work
1: well so so the the mecca document so i think you're referring to a piece that i wrote um called declaration proliferation Mm -hmm. where we saw we saw coming out of there was there so the 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 Mecca document, as, as you said, reaffirmed principles that the Prophet Muhammad had established um, for for the Muslim community. You know, principles such as you know needing needing to allow, tolerate, give rights to non-Muslim minorities um, in in the Muslim community in Mecca and Medina and the broader sort of Muslim empire at the time, um, and. And just you know other other principles which are fundamental to Islam. Um, obviously there there's a lot more to to get into there about sort of you know the extent to which historically, within the Muslim Empire, it was much easier for for sort of minority populations like Jews and Christians. To, to live within the Muslim empire than it was for Jews to live in, in Christian Europe, for example, which is part of why now in sort of the, the modern context of the nation state where it, it does start to become more difficult for religious minorities um, in, in a lot of these countries, uh, like part of the reason they're there is because they were fleeing prosecution in Europe. And, and you know, now that we're under a different sort of political system, they are facing these problems and are, you know, targeted with persecution. Unfortunately, you know, examples like the Yazidis in Iraq, for example, which again were had had lived peacefully. It's only when the, you know, extremists like um, ISIS or Daesh, as they're called, um, you know, that that's when the the Yazidis obviously were targeted with genocide. Uh, um, so. So I guess to get to your question, so a lot of these sort of religious, um, the religious establishment. So just just to go back a little bit, in in these countries, Islam is the official religion. So again, this is one of the differences, obviously, between the United States, where we don't have an official religion, whereas in these countries where the government is a religious actor, you know, it does produce religious educational materials for schools. You know, they oversee what's allowed to be said in mosques. And this greater sort of bureaucratization of religion very much um, increased after 9-11, after sort of Islam was seen as securitized or in need of greater securitization. There was this concern from these governments that Islamist groups were, you know, spreading either extremist messaging, which the U.S. is also concerned about, or just, you know, democratic message, you know, the idea is that like, well, you know, maybe we should have a say in our own government. And so from the perspective of, you know, the, the king of Saudi Arabia pushing for democracy and pushing for extremism are equally dangerous (laughs) and, and sort of categorized in in the same bubble or, you know, seen as, as equally problematic. And yeah. And so then, you know, when, when the Saudi king is sort of talking to, you know, us partners and saying, oh, the, you know, those, those really bad Islamists are saying all this scary stuff about extremism, even though some of what they're saying is in fact about need for greater democracy. But in the U.S., we're sort of like, oh, oh, terrorists, extremists, you know, (laughs) have to be, you know, really, really concerned about those guys. Um, And my hope is that there's been, you know, obviously a lot of, a lot more study of the Middle East There you know, came out of 9-11, you know, many, many scholars of, or students of Arabic, you know, the U.S. has paid for Many thousands of Americans to sort of study the Middle East and study Arabic, and so my hope is is that now there is a more nuanced um, sort of cohort of people. The question, though, is the extent to which that sort of trickles into the rest of the American population, and that that sort of more nuanced understanding of of kind of the dynamics in in the Middle East and sort of the ways in which these governments are are trying to demonize the, you know, the, the political opposition, um, in their countries that, that I'm not sure that, that again, to go back to the, the pushback on Twitter of like, well, don't call someone an Islamist when it's like, no, no, like it's, it's okay to, to call someone an Islamist if they are in fact, an Islamist, mm-hmm. as long as you don't mean terrorist when you say Islamist. Right. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. I, Cause I want to start to get into like how this affects U.S. policy when it comes to countries labeling themselves as moderate. Um, mm-hmm. Would you say that there is a link between, say, like Saudi Arabia labeling the Houthis a terrorist organization or like an extremist organization and U.S. policy then?
1: Definitely. So so getting into things like the labeling of the Houthis, um, you know, unfortunately, the U.S. has used this designation of, you know, state sponsor of terror or a foreign terrorist organization very in in, to pursue political goals, unfortunately, which, again, contributes to this perception around the world that, you know, the global war on terror was really just the U.S. going after actors they didn't like and not, in fact, going after actual terrorists. You know, the Mm -hmm. most glaring example probably being, you know, what was the nationality of most of the 9-11 hijackers? They were Saudi and Emirati for the most part. and yet, you know, we're not labeling either of those countries state sponsors of terror, um, you know, going after Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. Um, and so the, you know, we saw, for example, the Trump administration deciding to label the Houthis a foreign terrorist organization. The, the, the announcement came through January 10th and it went into effect January 19th. So the day before Trump left office, so clearly, this was not a priority for them. Like they could have labeled the Houthis a terrorist organization at any point prior to that, um, and and essentially, you know, when you look at the designation of of what, in fact, should you know what what are the criteria for being labeled a foreign terrorist organization. Um, You know, you have to actually engage of of acts of of terrorism and you need to be primarily interested in attacking the U.S. I mean, this is not actually about just kind of labeling, throwing the label around for, you know, any group engaging in political violence around the world, Um, you know, that they're Perhaps there, there's cause for that to be done as well. But but for the, the U.S. FTO designation, it's it's really about what is what does the United States need to be worried about of, of groups that are primarily interested in going after the United States? And so the Houthis, for all that they are, they have done horrible things. And I want to be very clear on this because I think there's sort of this misperception that um, that. You know, I I agree with the decision to lift the designation of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization that, you know, that was done as a political maneuver by the Trump administration to try to cause problems for the incoming Biden administration, as evidenced by the fact that they did it at the very last minute, as opposed to doing it earlier. and so I, I think it's from from a moral and humanitarian perspective. I think it was imperative that Biden lift that designation because the result of the designation was the further immiseration of the Yemeni population, hundreds of thousands of whom have already died, either from direct violence or from sort of the structural violence of the blockade against them and the lack of of food. You know, a rampant cholera epidemic, which preceded COVID, which is also <laughs> rampant in Yemen. Um, so all of that um to 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 point out that I, I agree with the lifting of the FTO designation. However, you know the, the Houthis are one of the major reasons for the, the you know, Yemen's misery right now. I mean the Houthis are very bad actors, they've done horrible things, torture, you know, ongoing violent hostilities. Unfortunately, not long after Biden lifted the, the FTO designation, the Houthis restarted the, the sort of stalemated campaign against the city of Madib, um, which is the city east of the capital of Sana'a, where a lot of people have, you know, internally displaced people have fled Houthi mm-hmm. violence and control in Sana'a and went to Madib because it's it's a, a gas-producing, or there's a sort of gas-producing facility, and so it was an area that had some kind of economic opportunity for people and was, was also just... Um, some were relatively accessible that they could get to. And so, you know, the Houthis reigniting their attack on Marib is, you know, evidence that, you know, these these are not a group that we can, that we will necessarily be able to engage with, you know, that, that they are interested in peace. They're not. They're interested in expanding their their control and their, their access to territory and resources in order to put them in a better position later on. Once, you know, eventually at some point, inshallah, the, the, the warring factions in Yemen will be ready to start negotiating with each other as opposed to just trying to kill each other. Mm -hmm. And the Houthis are trying to improve their position for those eventual negotiations. Um, so, uh, so again, just just to make very clear, the, the Houthis have done and are doing horrible things. However, they do not, in fact, meet the criteria for a foreign terrorist organization because they're not actually all that interested in the United States.
0: And um, what is, yeah, what does a designation do specifically? It, like, how does that inhibit aid and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, so... So an organization, for example, like Oxfam that had been doing a lot of work on the ground um, or any of these, you know, large, large and small organizations that have been trying to get ATMAs, they prior to the designation had to interact with the Houthis to gain access to the territory. So the, the Houthis control the most populous region of Yemen, which is the north. You know, they control the territory on which about 70 or 80 percent of of Yemenis live, so approximately ish in the range of 20 million people. And and once the the designation went into place, organizations cannot interact with the Houthis for fear of legal repercussions. That like you interacted with a terrorist, like you gave aid to Al-Qaeda basically is is what legally that could mean for them. Um, you know, that at that point the Houthis and Al-Qaeda are equivalent in the eyes of US law. Um, and there, there were dispensations granted saying that, like, look, humanitarian aid can still go through. But as we've observed around the world, in, in Syria at the moment, in Iran at the moment, also elsewhere, um, typically organizations are, are not willing to kind of test that because, you know, the kind of headache for, for a humanitarian organization that is found to be in violation of that law... Mm-hmm. Could could shut down their entire operation, so they're not going to risk their access to starving people in Yemen if that means that their access to starving people all over the world could be shut down indefinitely. So you know, from Oxfam's perspective, they'd rather be able to continue to help people all over the world if if they if it means um, you know that they they're not able to legally give aid to people in Yemen.
0: Yeah.
1: And so this is why we saw after you know the. Trump and Pompeo had sort of hinted that they might be planning to to designate the, the Houthis a foreign terrorist organization, and then after that did come through, we saw just across the board all these humanitarian organizations saying this is a terrible idea, we already were having a hard time, like Yemenis were already suffering at such vast numbers, and this will just exponentially increase that because now we we, can't, we won't be able to provide any aid. Um, And Yemen, I mean, the the problems in Yemen go back a long way. Um, I mean, Yemen was already dependent on exports for 90 percent of all of its sort of foodstuffs and just sort of basic necessities. Um, You know, Yemen does produce oil, um, not not in not at any level similar to kind of the major oil producers around it. Um, But Yemen's economy Previously um, was was really quite dependent on on petroleum mm-hmm. production, which, again, is a very centralized resource. You know, this is part of why we see authoritarian governments throughout the region is because the governments control access to the oil. You know, you can't it's not super easy to just like, you know, someone to go out in their backyard and start, you know, drilling oil well and start yep. you know, living on the proceeds from that. You know, oil is a very centralized Resource And this is, again, is part of, I mean, this gets into the question of the resource curse. Why is it that um, countries that, that have a lot of natural resources, especially oil, but also sometimes, you know, diamonds or gold or something, when, when the state can kind of control access to that resource, you tend to see, um, you know, it, it's not good for democracy. The state sort of can consolidate all mm-hmm. power uh, around control of that resource it often then wants to protect that resource so it builds up a pretty powerful security apparatus like military um or internal kind of police forces security forces in order to protect its access and when you're a country like the uae where you have a tiny population and huge amounts of oil then you can make life pretty good for your people you know you kind of keep them all happy you know similar to qatar similar to kuwait um saudi arabia is shifting now because they're bigger uh, they have a bigger population, and um, they're not able to sort of allow all of their citizens to live like royalty, the way the the citizens of the UAE and Qatar tend to live. Um, and you know, so and somewhere like Yemen, where you know population is is much, much, much bigger than their the kind of oil reserves that they have or are able to to produce. Um, you un, so under President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who ruled from 1978 until he was finally forced to step down in um, following the Arab Spring. I think it was in 2012. Uh, you he controlled the oil resources and he sort of distributed them in a, in a patronage system to members of you know his own family, his own broader sort of tribe and and allies. Um. And, and to the military, to kind of keep the military happy, which is part of why he was able to stay in power for so long. Um, I feel like I've lost the thread of your question.
0: <laughs> You're good. I think that, that covers a lot of it. Um, I just wanted... My, my question was about how, um, like, the designation by these countries who, who deem themselves moderate, um, if they label people extremist, How that influences U.S. policy, especially when it comes to like Yemen designation of as them being terrorists now. So when it comes to that specifically, where do you think that like Saudis, the Saudi position when it comes to the Houthis influences U.S. policy then? Like why why would it be important for them to label the Houthis a terrorist organization?
1: Yeah, so. So basically, the, the current situation in Yemen is the result of after Saleh, former president, was forced out of power um, about you know, a year or so. You know, it, it, although it happened in Egypt and Tunisia quickly, in Yemen, it took them almost a year of protest to finally get the president to step down. And the current acting president, um, Hadi, who's based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, he he was vice president. He's originally from South Yemen, and he he took power and essentially tried to govern, um, despite the fact that Saleh uh, was kind of acting as a spoiler and still had control of the military. And it's pretty not to get into all of the details, um, but eventually things things broke down. The the Houthis, who live in the far north region of Yemen and were historically marginalized and had been at war with the central government um, of Yemen and, you know, were, were demanding more rights and representation. And, um, you know, it's been described as sort of, you know, the, the oppressed becoming the oppressors, which unfortunately is so often what happens, um, that they, they allied with President Saleh and, and his sort of military allies and, and were able to take control of the capital of Sana'a. And also then, with salah's help um expanded all the way down to Aden, which is a, a town the other this basically yemen's second second city, um which historically was part of the the British colony in yemen um, you know has has sort of a very different cultural background where sanaa is is kind of in the north and is the sort of heartland of President Saleh and, and um, is where most of the, more of the population is, in sort of the northern part of Yemen, um, whereas the, the former South Yemen, of which Aden is, is effectively the capital, and historically had been the capital of the independent South Yemen, um, that the, the Houthis took control of Aden. And it was only when the UAE intervened militarily that they forced the Houthis back up into um, the previous North Yemen. So, so, basic, so Saudi Arabia led this coalition of almost all the Arab, other Arab states other than Oman and Algeria, all were involved in this coalition to invade and try to force the Houthis to give up control of Sana'a, of the capital. Um, and basically, they, it, it, it just didn't work. You know, kind of somewhat similar to dynamics that are, are often present in very mountainous terrain you know it's, it's very difficult to hold that kind of territory as we've seen you know for almost 20 years in Afghanistan um where you know the local population knows the region and often have you know they're they're from there or or they know people who are from there and can kind of take control um that they they hold the territory and so this sort of air campaign from the Saudis um just wasn't able to kind of retake that territory. And so even though the Houthis were pushed out of Aden, they have managed to retain control over much of the previous, what was previously North Yemen, which so North and South Yemen had been, had, were separate countries. Um, South Yemen had been uh, uh, an, a part of the British empire for a while, given its sort of strategic location at the map the entrance to the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. And then North Yemen had been controlled by the Ottomans and then um, was subsequently sort of an, an imamate was established was re-established there um, after the Ottomans sort of fell apart after World War I. And these were two separate countries that were sometimes at war with each other and then eventually reunified in 1990. And um, President Saleh became the president of all of Yemen. And then the South tried to secede in 1994 and they were sort of forced back in relatively quickly um, because even though the South has a lot of the resources, the North had the stronger military. Um, and so, President, so so there have been um, there have been tensions in Yemen going back a long time, but but especially you know, kind of came to a head in the nineties. So so from the Saudis perspective, the Houthis are are dangerous. They are, you know, they see them as as you know, these terrorists. Um, and part of the the Saudis' concern is because the Houthis uh, they, the Saudis saw them as allied with Iran. What's what's sort of ironic is at the time that the Houthis took over, in in kind of late 2014, um, and at the time the Saudis intervened in early 2015, Iran did not have much of a relationship with the Houthis. They had, you know, sort of acknowledged like, you know, good good job, guys. <laughs> you know, we're we're kind of rhetorically there for you, but like there was not a lot of material support. And yet, once Saudi got involved because it, it thought Iran was providing a lot of support or, or, it feared that Iran might be in a position to now provide support. Then Iran was like, Oh, we can right. use this. <laughs> Saudi Arabia is throwing billions of dollars into this war. And so for actually very few resources, we can, you know, get some missiles to the Houthis. We can kind of smuggle them in from Oman. We can, there, there is a, a sea blockade. Um, and I, I don't have Great data in front of me about like to what extent the Iranians have been able to sort of get through the blockade i mean it it is quite effective in starving Yemen um mm. I don't know how effective it's been at sort of preventing um, uh, weapons from getting through. I think most of the weapons have been coming overland through Oman um so so again the the Saudis saw this as as necessary because you know it's it's their southern border, and they were really worried about kind of a hezbollah like situation getting started on their southern flank that Iran would just kind of continue to grow in power um and could potentially threaten them there um but but again it, what's ironic is just that Iran wasn't actually all that involved and and now they're much more involved, and so saudi arabia has 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 wasted you know. <laughs> billions of dollars on this and and the result is that they're the houthis are stronger the iranians are more involved and the saudis have have you know gotten a lot of of deserved pushback from the international community for the extent to which that they have you know created or been a factor in creating the largest humanitarian catastrophe in the world Mm -hmm. for for several years now i mean it's been it's been you know it's just been getting worse which is what's so horrifying Um, so, so the Saudis welcome, you know, it was a favor to the Saudis that, and and mostly, I mean, the designation of the Houthis as an FTO was mostly about trying to prevent Biden from, from having as much maneuverability in Yemen. Um, and it was a favor to the Saudis who had wanted it for a long time. And, you know, we know Trump and, you know, Jared Kushner and MBS were buddy, buddy and, who knows what kind of deals went down as a result. Um, but so this was kind of the, the parting gift from the Trump administration. And I say gift facetiously that that was intended to kind of make things harder for for Biden. Um, and so moving forward, it is really important to keep in mind that, um, you know, the, the U.S. has very little leverage against the Houthis. Like even the FTO designation wasn't going to make that big of a difference and in some ways was actually probably going to empower the Houthis further because they're already so isolated. So it's not sort of like when, Oh, oh and your question about like, what, what what's the result of an FTO designation. So it's essentially, you know, that, that sanctions are imposed and any sort of interaction with that group is then, you know, an individual or an organization that interacts with a terrorist organization is then legally on the line for like aiding and abetting terrorism, which is a very, Serious charge, um, so so th- and but there the Houthis don't actually interact with you know foreign organizations all that much. I mean they interact with Iran now more than they used to, but Iran is also subject to all these sanctions. So and is you know managing to get around them, relative you know not not to the extent that I mean their their population is still suffering as a result. But like it's not harming the regime all that much. Um, so so when you have two organi you know groups or or entities that are already so isolated from sort of international finance or international trade like they aren't interacting with the rest of the world they're just interacting with each other now Iran and the Houthis um so again the FTO designation was really just going to push the Houthis closer to Iran and again further kind of empower them because they you know if there's no aid coming in If there's no, um, you know, no other organizations can even can can legally interact in Yemen. That just means that the Houthis really are the only game in town. And so it it just makes them all that much more powerful. So, again, I can understand why, you know, a lot of people in Yemen actually welcomed the, the designation of the Houthis. Some people in Yemen welcomed the designation because they saw it as like finally the U.S. was paying attention and like acknowledging the abuses and atrocities that the Houthis have done. Um, and so they they have resisted the lifting of the designation because they saw it as kind of losing a point of leverage. But I would argue just the opposite, that, that the U.S. really doesn't have any leverage against the Houthis. To get leverage against them, the U.S. needs to be in a in a position where we can actually talk to Iran and talk about, you know, Iran will <laughs> lower these sanctions against you if you, you know, come back into compliance with the Iran nuclear deal and stop supporting the Houthis. Um, and so this this is the final point, I think, on the Yemen question is like to get anywhere in Yemen, the foreign money has to stop pouring in I mean the Saudis are pouring in money and and you know, support and resources. The Emiratis continue to to pour in resources to the South, to what previously South Yemen and what they hope would in the future be an independent South Yemen again. The Iranians are pouring in resources to the Houthis. And so that means the incentives of the warring parties are to just keep fighting. They have more and more weapons and resources and they, they have no incentive to stop. Whereas if all that funding were to dry up, then suddenly the incentives shift and they realize like, oh, I guess we can't just keep fighting indefinitely. At some point, we're going to run out of resources and weapons and fighters. And eventually, you know, that's how civil wars stop. Either that the resources stop pouring in, or you have a decisive military victory. Um, And again, we, you know, we had the entire kind of Arab League throwing its weight against the Houthis, and that didn't work. Um, And they've only consolidated their position. So, I mean, unless there is a country that is, Interested in kind of getting in on the ground and fighting the Houthis, you know, person to person, which I don't. I don't think any country is really willing to do, and I'm not advocating for that because that would be devastating on a humanitarian level. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, I guess the the comparable example would be Libya. How you know you have all this foreign intervention in Libya. And just kind of a, you know a stalemate with General Haftar going against the government in Tripoli, and it was and you know the UAE supporting this warlord General Haftar against the internationally recognized government, and it was only when Turkey sent in a huge amount of resources and troops that finally sort of decisively shifted the military balance, such that Haftar sort of had to retreat back into eastern Libya, um, and I and I just. I don't, and and with with devastating consequences on the ground for Libya. Um, And I don't really see any, any foreign, you know, any country on the horizon that seems likely to to do that again, given that they've already tried. And again, given sort of the geography of Yemen, it's, it's not necessarily likely that even that would work. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that answer your question about kind of the Saudis and the Houthis?
0: Yeah, definitely. And now to move on to, the announcement that happened last Thursday.
1: This war has to end.
0: And to underscore our commitment, we are ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. At the same time, Saudi Arabia faces missile attacks,
1: UAV strikes, and other threats from Iranian-supplied forces in multiple countries. We're going to continue to support and help Saudi Arabia defend its sovereignty and its territorial integrity and its people.
0: Biden says that he's going to pull all offensive support of Saudi Arabia in Yemen. Um, but then after that, he says that he still wants to support Saudi Arabia um, due to, like, Iran's offensive measures against Saudi Arabia. Do you what's going on there? Do you think that that's kind of... <laughs> like an under, like a loophole for them to still fund it? Or do you think that there's like, I mean, one, who is Iran in that situation? Are they labeling the Houthis as Iran in that situation? And then, I mean, is that just a loophole?
1: <laughs> that's, that's a really good question. Um, and that's that a lot of people have been asking. Yeah. So Biden's statement, I think was intentionally vague. Um, and for, for various reasons, I think some of the reasons are Biden wanted to do something quickly um, on this, which I, which is commendable because people are dying. Um, so I do think it's important to send a strong signal to Saudi Arabia that, you know, this is not the Trump administration that's just going to sell you inordinate amounts of weapons, um, that the U.S. is going to change policy here. But Biden is still staffing up his team, his State Department, you know, I, my sense is that there's some disagreement here on what exactly the U.S. position should be. Mm. Um, And there's probably some disagreement within Biden's team over what that should be. And so I suspect that sort of that the sort of end support for offensive Saudi military action is intentionally vague um, because from Saudi Arabia's perspective, they are defending themselves. From kind of Iranian incursions, which again is somewhat mischaracterizes it, because the Houthis are not puppets of Iran; they are their own actors pursuing their own agenda, and Iran has sort of just benefited from being able to kind of poke the Saudis, which they enjoy doing. Um, But but even if. Iran were convinced to withdraw all support, I mean, the Houthis still have their own agenda. It's not like the Houthis evaporate if Iran withdraws support. Um, it would, they would need to, they would be more likely to come to the negotiating table at that point, um, but they're not going to disappear. Um, so I think I think the, uh, part, and also part of the calculus here is that Biden, Biden, um, does want to re-enter the JCPOA, or at least that's what he said on the campaign trail. He's now, there's some ambiguity there about what exactly his key objective is. I I think a key objective should be preventing Iran from getting to a place where they can develop a nuclear weapon. And this should ostensibly also be on the agenda of um, Israel and Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I mean, this is a shared interest throughout the region which is why it's kind of ridiculous that Israel threatened to start a war uh, if Biden starts to negotiate with Iran because Israel (laughs) (laughs) shouldn't want (laughs) Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Uh, And again, it's ridiculous that Israel feels that it can threaten the United States in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But so, so I think part of it is, you know, Biden wanted to do something quickly. He didn't want to foreclose his own options. And importantly, moving forward, he he wants Saudi Arabia in particular, also the UAE, also the other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the, the GCC, to to be willing to go forward as the U.S. reenters negotiations with Iran, whatever that looks like. Um, and that moving forward, he knows that, you know, the Gulf countries were very upset that the JCPOA was signed with the P5-plus-1, which did not include any members of the GCC. I mean, the, the you know, the countries involved in the Iran deal were, you know, the U.S. and France and Russia, you know, like the the nuclear countries. Um, well, the commonly understood to be nuclear countries, not counting Israel. Um, and... The and and the Gulf countries were were just upset that they were not included in that. And my understanding is that at the time it was, you know, the U.S. wanted to just focus on this issue of a nuclear weapon and preventing Iran from acquiring one. Whereas kind of this this broader issue of, you know, Iran's activities throughout the region, Iranian missiles, et cetera, et cetera. The things that the Gulf countries are 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 more worried about, even in fact, than a nuke, interestingly enough, that that was just going to be too much to try to negotiate. That instead the Obama administration just focused on the nuclear issue, nuclear question, and then I, my understanding is the hope was to then move on, build on that, to, and the hope for a long time. I mean, come from. I mean, CENTCOM says the same thing that the U.S. would really like it if there were a regional security architecture in the region that these countries could sort of provide for their own defense. And and ideally, that would include Iran. That there would be this sort of acknowledgement that it's in all of these countries' mutual interests to to not be at the brink of of war with each other, and to acknowledge that they have a lot of shared that they you know all of them are facing issues of of climate change. All of them have you know large youth populations that they need to work on moving away from a petroleum based economy because. Those don't tend to provide a lot of jobs. Like all of these countries face a lot of the same issues. Um, And so if they were able to sort of work in a more uh, in in a if they were able to kind of put aside a lot of their animosities, that's something that that the U.S. has been saying um, that that would be the U.S. has said this would be a good thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. and Yet so far, um, U.S. policy tends to be to continue to be dominated by sort of. Defense contractors and, you know, the by, you know, War Incorporated, you know, the big um, weapons producers like Raytheon, like Boeing, like Northrop Grumman, that are that are primarily interested in just selling weapons to these countries. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, obviously we saw that on full display in under the, the Trump administration. Um, and so moving forward in terms of thinking about how to rethink the U.S. role in the region and to rethink the incentives of a lot of these big regional players, um, I I think it would be really helpful if the U.S. and the international community adopted resolutions around, you know, if if you break it, you bought it, that if you invade a country, you are on the hook for paying for reconstruction um, which would mean the US owes a lot of money to the region. I mean, we've already spent a lot of money in the region, but a lot of it was on weapons and destruction um, and that it, it would be in US, the US interest to to work multilaterally. And, and you know, this is also in Europe's interest as well to try to, to enhance the stability of the region. Obviously, Europe feeling concerned about you know another sort of refugee crisis, so-called refugee crisis, like we saw in, in 2015, and and beyond then. Um, and so, you know, moving forward, needing to shift the incentives that it's not these powerful weapons manufacturers that are giving huge amounts of money to Congress and, you know, building facilities, you know, essentially in, in every congressional district in the country so that no member of Congress is willing to have any of those facilities shut down, despite the fact that the Pentagon itself has said things like, look, some of these legacy contracts, we're just really not interested in renewing anymore. We don't need this stuff, guys. And members of Congress are like, no, 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 you'll, we're giving you the money for it, you know, find a way to use it, which then contributes to why we then see the Pentagon through the 1033 program shifting a lot of military equipment to police forces in, in this country and, you know, the militarization of police. So a lot of this gets back to needing to shift the incentives, not letting um, the defense industry determine U.S. policy, drive U.S. policy, and and also requiring that, that countries that have engaged in such violence around the world um, be on the hook to help pay for Reconstruction to an extent to, to an extent that is um, punitive, that they, they think twice about doing that again in the future.
0: Yeah. So when it comes to Biden potentially pulling all support for Saudi Arabia and Yemen, does that look like it'll shift the incentive for Iran to pull funding from the Houthis? Or like, what do you think Biden needs to do to pressure Iran and Saudi Arabia to actually negotiate?
1: Yeah, so I think they they are separate things. It's it's definitely you know Saudis aren't going to want to pull back until Iran agrees to do so, and Iran isn't going to want to pull back unless you know Saudi agrees to do so. Um, and so I I think they are separate, but obviously very closely interrelated questions that the U.S. needs to have a working relationship with Iran you know needs to to be in a position to be able to say to Iran look we will we'll lift sanctions we will back off of any of this unproductive talk of regime change which again is has not gone well for the most part anywhere the US has tried to do that sure the Iranian regime has done terrible things and continues to do terrible things but they're a sovereign country um and so the U.S. needs to develop a working relationship with them in a way that we can address some of our shared concerns. Um, and so things like re-entering the JCPOA or you know some other version of that kind of um, agreement that prevents a nuclear weapon and then allows the U.S. To, to, to move more quickly, I think, on lifting sanctions. I mean, that was part of what the downfall um, of... Not well, the downfall was Trump pulling out, but, but you know, when, when the U.S., um, when the JCPOA was, was agreed upon, sanctions didn't lift all that quickly for Iran. And so I think a lot of Iranians sort of felt that perhaps they had entered into this agreement and saw no benefit. And so moving forward, I think the U.S. and international community need to be ready to move quickly to show Iran like they if you if you play ball and you are ready to cooperate, There are benefits over here for you for for sort of interacting, um, you know, as Pompeo liked to say, like a normal country with the rest of the world. Um, And the U.S. also needs Saudi Arabia to to not act as a spoiler, um, you know, sort of yelling about, you know, how this is so bad for the region. And and that um, I mean, historically, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have had a very close relationship I, I put out a brief co-authored with my colleague, Steve Simon in early October on the anniversary of uh, Khashoggi's murder, um, that it's really long past time to rethink the U.S.-Saudi relationship, that you know, continuing to prop up these dictators around the region is, is not in the U.S. interests. Again, not that we should be pushing for regime changes are sovereign countries, um, but we need to stop selling them these weapons And again, that gets back to like, not letting the arms con, you know, the the arms sellers um, dictate our policy.
0: Yeah. And if that, so, if Biden still continues to like support Saudi Arabia through like, I don't know what it would be, like Patriot missiles or something like that, do you still think that that is a form of supporting a regime? Like, is that second half of his statement that he made last Thursday or Friday is that technically still him saying that he's going to support a regime? And do you think that we have to rethink that too?
1: Yes. Yeah. So he, he, he very clearly said the U S is still committed to supporting Saudi Arabia to defend itself from Iran. And yes, your question about like who's Iran in this, in this statement, like are the Houthis Iran? And I, I think he just was speaking broadly about, you know, the fact that Saudi Arabia feels itself, um, to be in sort of a defensive crouch, despite the fact that Saudi Arabia has a, a lot of weapons and, you know, is a very wealthy country um, mm-hmm. and really doesn't need the U.S. to to defend it in the way that uh, it, it claims it needs. Um, Uh, But but again, I think part of Biden's uh, reasoning there is that he he doesn't want Saudi Arabia, the UAE, these other Gulf countries to act as spoilers in a possible agreement with Iran. He he wants, I think, in general, or I hope he wants the region to sort of move towards more cooperation for Iran, for, for all countries to sort of stop. Um, you know, funding militias around the region. I mean, we saw that from Saudi in Syria. We saw that from the UAE in Syria and in Libya and elsewhere. Um, You know, we see Turkey has been doing a lot of this. And, you know, moving forward, there is this question of if the U.S. is going to reduce its military footprint in the region, do we simply have to get used to the idea that it's just going to be destabilizing for the region, that these countries are going to be jockeying for position with each other, and you know we might see an arms race. Um, and and I would argue that like well that's already happening with this large U.S. military footprint in the region, and with all these weapons that the U.S. is selling, they're just using them on each other. And and then the and then the blowback comes to the U.S. because there is very much a perception that the U.S. is sort of in charge and the U.S. is in charge militarily. We're still sort of the military hegemon for the region. Um, and so ultimately it is on us when all of this stuff kind of happens. So moving forward and it's been interesting to hear from Gulf, you know, colleagues from, from the Gulf um, who say the U.S. sometimes gets in the way and that if the U.S. were to just kind of be less involved these countries would be able to work things out with each other and and I think a key example of that was after the attack on the saudi oil facilities um in september of of 2019 um when the when the trump administration did not respond and interestingly after that you you saw some more kind of tendrils of diplomacy between iran well from from the saudis kind of reaching out through back channels to iran to say hey hey like we i know we've been talking a big game but but you know once you go after our oil facilities we would really prefer um to kind of tone down the rhetoric and let's let's just talk things out here whereas once after the 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 killing of Soleimani, then I mean, you did see Gulf, you know, the, the statements from Gulf capitals tended to be calling for calm and, you know, they, they did not want to war in their backyard, but, but you did also then start to see kind of like, oh, okay, so we've got the U.S. backing us up again, like maybe we're going to enhance some of this um, hostile rhetoric against Iran. So again, just when the U.S. kind of backs off and these countries have to, you know, are left with the reality of, oh, if, if it comes to war, we have to fight it, no, like they are not interested in that. They're interested in the U.S. fighting their wars. So if the U.S. isn't around, they're not so interested in war anymore.
0: OK, yeah, well, that's that's really great. We've, we've kind of kept you here for a while. But if, if there's <laughs> anything else that you want to um, focus on, if there's anything else that you think that maybe Biden might not do as well, focusing on, um, please address that. And then you can just say where people can find you.
1: Yeah, so very quickly, because I do have to go. Um, I, I do worry that that, um, you know, although I think Trump made things a lot worse in many ways, um, by, he he was tapping into the fact that the American people are really tired of forever wars. And so even though he didn't, he didn't you know, whenever he tried to like get out of Syria, for example, everyone lost their minds, <laughs> and so then he didn't. um but that that impulse, I think it was good and and is and is in touch with what a lot of Americans want, you know, the end the endless wars and spend that you know, I think I just heard this at like fifty three cents of every dollar of discretionary funding goes to the Pentagon. I think it must be even higher than that, actually. I mean, it's a huge amount of of American resources go into funding the military industrial complex and, you know, perpetuating violence around the world, which makes the U.S. less secure. And so I, I think although Trump was not actually able to execute some of those impulses that he had for various reasons, um, and so Biden has now said America is back. I worry that that means, you know, America is back militarily. And certainly Biden has has talked about reempowering the State Department, which is great and very important. And you know, rejoined multilateral um, agreements like the Paris Climate Accords, which is also great, but insufficient. Um, I do worry that he kind of retains this this kind of old school notion of of American primacy that America, you know, needs to be all over the world, all the time, leading and, and involved in every conflict, which is not the case. And, you know, moving forward, I, I really hope that we can see, um, you know, efforts by, by politicians, you know, like, like Bernie Sanders, who could sound like Trump on a lot of these issues of, you know, the fact that we need to focus on the American middle class, You know, representatives um, like Rohana of California, who's who's done a lot on the issue of, you know, Congress is supposed to be the one that declares war. And they've sort of absconded um, from this responsibility. And um, and, you know, and also other other representatives, um, you know, Massey on, on the Republican side in the House has also called for. Congress to step back up and, and retake its, its um, responsibilities on um, lifting the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs that have allowed for the entire war on terror. Um, you know, other, there are plenty of members of Congress um, that have, have made this argument. And so I, I do think it's very important that Biden listen to them, that, you know, Biden is old and comes from a different era. And I think younger generations, the millennials, and Gen Z are really sick of the forever wars and that Biden would do well to sort of listen to polling that makes that abundantly clear. Um, and and my hope is just that moving forward as as kind of your and my generation starts to take the reins of power, that, that we will push for a more restrained US foreign policy, um, that we understand that militarism is not the way to go and that um, to actually address the major security threats, again, climate change, um, that we, we can't, can't do that with the military.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. If you want to just tell people where they can find you certain websites, social media, that would be awesome. And we can let you go.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Annel Sheeline, um, and I'm at the Quincy Institute, um, uh, and, um, on i don't i don't know when this will be coming out but I'll be speaking on a panel with Ro Khanna um, on this this week on Thursday 1:30 p.m. Eastern also with Aisha Juman who's a humanitarian activist Yemeni humanitarian activist talking about kind of what Biden should do now in Yemen and um, if folks are interested if you're interested yeah. I'd love to have you tune in
0: That's awesome. Well thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. We can let go, it's the full send, it's the get-go, it's the get-go, get-go, get-go. still not as mean as a bank account screen, on oh, no. not really,
0: though. No. you would probably jealous of me when well, I don't have a lot of money, but I've got a full bread box and some...